I'm Halima Atta, and welcome back to another episode of A Little Perspective. Welcome, welcome back to another episode of A Little Perspective. I think I've been starting every episode with this exact phrase lately, but to move on, here's a little update on my life. On Thursday of this previous week, admissions decisions were actually released for FSU, and fortunately, checking my application portal didn't result in me crying because I was accepted, and so that was really fun. Uh, It was more of a relief than anything because I was just prepared. You know, like applying to so many scholarships, I've seen, uh, you know, my fair share of rejections. And so like seeing the confetti on my computer screen was really, it was very, very relieving. Um, But now that I'm finally starting to hear back from the colleges I applied to back in November, I really can't help but to reflect on college fairs and, you know, all the college-related emails I've, like, received and the things I've attended and cleared from my inbox within the past year. And honestly, I applaud those recruiters for working overtime because it does take a lot of effort. But to mention a specific encounter I had at a college recruitment event um, just this, earlier this year, I was able to go to Tampa. Um, it was mid, mid-January, mid I think, to attend a conference for the FMEA organization. It's like a band-related thing here in Florida. And I was able to participate in a college fair on the last day that we were attending. And there were tons of schools there obviously promoting their band programs, in addition to the U.S. Marines, which had their own booth there as well. And although my friends and I had almost no interest in joining the Marines, we sat and listened to their you know mini presentation where they detailed like their schedule how often they practice you know being in the band there what it's like um, where they get stationed stuff like that um we even got to play the kazoo for them we did play a march for them on the kazoo and the national anthem which is kind of random but i do have the video saved on my phone so you know just a fun fact there But yeah, even though my friends and I only spoke to the representatives for the Marines for maybe 15, 20 minutes maximum, I left their booth feeling pretty knowledgeable on their schedule and, you know, how their band and program as a whole operates. And revisiting this experience really did get me thinking a little bit more about military recruitment as it relates to public high schools. You know, I attend a public high school for some background. Existing on nearly every high school campus in some capacity, these military promotion booths have a notable presence in the United States. And this presence has become so strong that it's been recognized by various organizations at both the state and national level. To read an excerpt from an article written by the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, of New Jersey, Congress passed two laws that gave recruiters information about young people and to allow recruiters to go into the schools so they can try to convince high school students to enter the military. These laws were contained in the No Child Left Behind Act, or the NCLB, of 2001, and the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2002. NDAA. Similar to college recruitment tactics, these military promotion booths and the people who run them make students feel so unique that they're enticed to join the military in an effort to unlock their true potential through serving their country. And it's safe to say that making people feel unique is often one of the central aims of most recruitment tactics, you know, in general. I'm even just looking back to the emails I would get. This was earlier in the year. I still do get them even though I'm done applying to all my colleges. But the University of Tulsa specifically would send me emails and I copied and pasted like the first sentence of the email and it said, your potential as a student is undeniable. So I want to be sure you know how eager I am for you to apply to the University of Tulsa. That school was never on my list, and it still isn't, but I mean, there were points where I would, weed, I would read that email and maybe even consider, you know, maybe I do want to go to school in Oklahoma, because that's such a kind thing to say to me, but obviously, like, it's it's, just, it's an email that they sent to everybody on that, you know, college board student search list, so you're not special for receiving it, but the fact that they would send sentences like that out to students, potential students, would, you know, entice them to actually apply to the school. 
But you know, emails and messages like those often sound way too good to be true. And when it comes to the recruitment tactics employed by the U.S. military within public high schools, they are, in fact, too good to be true. Ever since those laws I mentioned a little earlier were enacted, a bunch of issues have appeared, with the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey noting that since those laws have gone into effect, many educators, students, and parents have complained that recruiters in schools are using heavy-handed tactics to harass students, violate students' privacy rights, and target poor students and students of color. Known as the poverty draft, this pattern spotted in military recruitment tactics continues to grow and grow each year. But why does it exist? And perhaps more importantly, Why is it a bad thing? Continue listening to this episode to learn more. So as I did provide a pretty lengthy description of the poverty draft in that episode opener, I'm not going to spend too much time defining it, but just to give a quick general overview of what it is. The poverty draft is the unofficial name of the recruitment trend where military organizations intentionally target low-income Black Americans and Latinos slash Hispanics in schools. And to kind of fully grasp the size of this issue, I think it's completely necessary to understand the amount of access that military recruiters have in public high schools throughout the nation. Um, Just to read a little excerpt from an article written back in 2015 by Education Week, the 2001 No Child Left Behind Act requires that public high schools give the military as much access to campuses and student contact information as is given to any other recruiter. Many schools allow military recruiters to coach sports, serve as substitute teachers, chaperone school dances, and engage in other activities. In some cases, recruiters are such a regular presence in high schools that students and staff regard them as school employees. So now that I mentioned it maybe three times in this episode already, the No Child Left Behind Act that was enacted in 2001, it clearly had a really big impact on the access that military recruiters have to students in these low-income neighborhoods. And I think it's especially difficult for people to visualize this issue if they do not attend a school that's predominantly has, you know, a Black or Hispanic population that's not in a low-income community, because you really do need to see it to understand it. You know the saying where it's like, you need to see it to believe it? I feel like in this example, you need to see it to truly understand it. Because as you can read as many articles about the poverty draft as you want, but you'll never really understand understand its impact until you're maybe teaching at a school where you're in a low-income community and you're seeing students come back from lunch with a bunch of pamphlets, um, you know, like those rubber bracelets kind of advertising the U.S. Marines or the Navy, like just a bunch of different aspects of the military system and saying, oh, you know, like I'm going to join the military because now I can go blah, 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 and accomplish this dream of mine for free because I can't afford it. And so you don't understand the impact until you actually go to that school and you see it with your own eyes. But of course, the poverty drop is about more than students going to lunch for half an hour and coming back to their classrooms with pamphlets that promote the U.S. military. It's a lot more complex and it looks very different in different schools and different regions throughout the U.S. So let's look at some examples of what the poverty draft can look like in American public schools. So the poverty draft often manifests itself into public schools in the country through a strong presence of JROTC programs in low-income communities. Now, for some context, JROTC stands for the Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps. Essentially, this is a military-based program that's been established in thousands of U.S. schools that seeks to, and I quote directly from the JROTC's website, instill in students in United States secondary educational institutions the values of citizenship, service to the United States, 
and personal responsibility and a sense of accomplishment. Now, reading that little message alone doesn't make JROTC seem like a bad thing because in itself, it's really not. It makes sense that a, a country that relies so strongly on military forces would implement these programs to encourage young students to join the military and enlist, whatever. So it seems like an, it seems normal and it's completely acceptable in itself. However, the issue arises when you realize that a lot of the JROTC programs are especially prevalent in low-income communities and neighborhoods. To read from a piece published by the National Youth and Militarism Program, JROTC programs in the U.S. public schools are growing at an exponential rate since Congress lifted the cap on how many schools could have programs. JROTC is not considered a recruiting tool by the Department of Defense, but encourages the development of relationships between JROTC instructors and military recruiters. In spite of the Department of Defense's claim, more than 50% of JROTC cadets join the military as enlisted personnel. Most JROTC programs occur in schools where the community is either working class or impoverished, and more than often, those schools are also predominantly populated by youth of color. So given that the poverty draft is something that's completely centered around targeting and predominantly targeting people that are of students of color or low income, it makes sense that they're especially prevalent in low income communities that are populated by people of color. So no, the prevalence of JROTC programs in predominantly black, Hispanic, low income schools isn't something that just happens like out of nowhere. It's something that's strategic. And these programs are implemented into these low-income schools as a way to recruit very vulnerable populations into the military. So it's just a subset of the poverty draft. It may not look like it, but it leads more than 50% of participants in the JROTC programs, which are predominantly in inner city schools, into the military. The same way there's a school-to-prison pipeline that plagues Black students in low-income communities, there is a school-to-military pipeline, which kind of preys on low-income students in, again, low-income communities. And this is kind of one of the clearest ways to kind of visualize a poverty draft if you're not actually in one of these schools, because students will join the JROTC program, and it's kind of disguised as something that will teach students discipline and, you know, a commitment to their country, and then it, you know, leads many of these vulnerable populations into the military. The same way that people at recruitment tables do. Another example of the poverty draft and what it looks like in public schools includes many students' default enrollment into military programs. At Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. College Prep, a public school predominantly consisting of Black and Latino students on Chicago's South Side, tons of students have noted being put into JROTC programs against their will. Chalkbeat, an educational reporting organization based in Chicago, featured an article which mentioned that the practice of automatically enrolling students in JROTC has been raised multiple times with district leaders who have yet to stop the practice. According to copies of district emails and interviews with students, teachers, parents, and local school council members. With data showing that Chicago schools that are majority Black or Latino generally have the highest percentages of students enrolled in these JROTC programs, the existence of the poverty draft becomes very clear. And when you look at this issue closely, there really is no explanation for why students in these, you know, predominantly Black, Hispanic areas, low-income communities are being enrolled into JROTC-type classes against their will. And I think the only possible explanation that could arise relates to the poverty draft, which is why it makes a lot of sense as to not only why JROTC programs are especially prevalent within these communities, but why students are enrolled in them against their will, because they want to kind of define that pipeline that leads low-income students, minority students, into the military. 
None of this is coincidental because it's strategic. And according to Natasha Erskine, a former JROTC participant, a former U.S. Air Force veteran and a current anti-war activist, the concentration of JROTC programs in predominantly Black and Latino schools raises similar concerns as the over-policing of students of color, an issue that has come under renewed scrutiny over the past year. And I think when it comes to pipeline-based issues, so you know, the school-to-prison pipeline, where Black students are so over-policed in schools that it leads them to being thrown into jail at higher rates than their white counterparts. And then, of course, things like um, the military pipeline that we're talking about right now. A lot of people don't understand that the term pipeline is meant to describe phenomenons that are very gradual. So a black baby, for example, isn't going to enter preschool and then be thrown into jail. Um, A black student living in a low-income area isn't going to be placed into a JROTC program and then immediately thrown into the Air Force. It's gradual, and it often is disguised under, you know, something patriotic, something that's helped your country, better your community. And then people, as next thing that they know, they're in these military programs or they're in jail. It's, It's something that's gradual. And it often looks like, you know, programs that kind of target one group or one demographic specifically, and it leads them into another destination where they probably wouldn't have been if they weren't a part of those programs. So when looking at JROTC, the issue isn't JROTC in itself. I, I know a lot of people that actually have enjoyed their time in JROTC and have no interest in joining the military, but that is about 50% of them, meaning there are about half the participants in that program have gradually been, you know, fed this propaganda that kind of, I know that's an extreme word, but you know, things that kind of promote the U.S. military. And while they may have had no desire to join before, they're all of a sudden preyed upon because they're black or because they're Hispanic or because they're low-income students. And the next thing they know, they're serving in the military and thinking that that's the only option for them. When there were actually a lot of other ones that are not centered around the military at all. So really the best way to describe this is through the word pipeline, because it's something gradual. And when you enter it, it leads students into an outcome that they might not have even considered if they weren't put into these programs against their will or put into these programs that are so prevalent in their communities because they earn a certain income on an annual basis. Now, this next aspect of the poverty draft is actually one of the last ones I'm going to discuss, and I wanted to make it its own section because there is so much to unpack here. So I think the last um, kind of aspect of the poverty draft that a lot of people are unfamiliar with is its appeal to the impoverished through affordability. While many of us are now familiar with the fact that recruiters, military recruiters specifically, often target low-income students, these tactics are often effective because of their focus on affordability. Sure, everyone knows that if you visit a military recruitment booth, the same way I did when I was in Tampa, as I mentioned in the opener of this episode, you might get a free water bottle, a free t-shirt, a free pen, maybe a free sticker if you're lucky, but these things alone aren't what kind of entice students to join the military. I mean, if that's what it was about, I would have been serving in the armed forces like forever ago because I love free stickers and pens. But what makes these students actually choose to join the military isn't free merchandise from these military recruiters. It's actually a promise for their futures to be affordable through joining the military. According to an article written by Benjamin Barber, a research associate of the Facing South organization and a graduate student at the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania, Over the past decade, total debt on student loans held by U.S. residents has tripled to more than $1.5 trillion. Today, more than 44 million U.S. households carry student debt, with an average of over $37,000. Among the states with the highest per capita student debt burden is Georgia, at $7,200. 
In the South, the average student loan debt per capita is roughly $5,220 higher than the national average of $4,920. And when considering that the poverty draft is especially prevalent in Southern states, these statistics I just mentioned make complete sense. Because recruiters make the military seem more desirable to low-income minority students by making it seem as if the only way out, in reference to their financial situations, could be found through their promises of reduced student debt. And ever since 1973, when Americans' participation in the military became voluntary, sources have noted that more and more citizens are joining the military not to promote patriotism, but for financial reasons. Based on information from a 2017 poll published by the Department of Defense, 49% of Army recruits signed up to pay for their education. Once the Army was able to exceed its 2019 recruitment, enlisting more than 60,000 new active-duty soldiers, Major General Frank Muth commanding officer in charge of recruitment, attributed it to the national increase in college debt. Speaking to reporters, Major General Frank Muth stated that you can get out of the Army after four years, 100% paid for state college anywhere in the United States, alluding to that desirable nature of military recruitment, which is what makes it so effective. When you kind of promote yourselves or your business or your organization to students that lack finances, it makes sense that they're going to be able to join your organization and they're going to feel enticed to join it specifically because they lack money and they want to be able to have a future that's completely secured where they're not going to end up in debt the same way that most Americans do. So talking about all of these examples of what the poverty draft looks like in public schools and all of these statistics, it leads me to the big question. Why does the poverty draft exist in the first place? Well, the answer is pretty clear, because the military needs members now more than ever. And by promising those in impoverished communities a quick way out of poverty, increasing those enlistment numbers becomes relatively easy. To read an excerpt from the previously mentioned article, Southern states, which suffer disproportionately from poverty, also provide a disproportionate number of military recruits. Young people in the South enlist at two to three times the rate as those from other regions. It was no accident that recruiters historically focused their efforts in an area of the South stretching from Virginia to Texas. In more recent years, the military has expanded its recruitment efforts from more rural areas to target young people living in big cities as well. And this is exactly where the military swoops in. What the military offers can be attractive, up to 100% of college tuition for someone serving on active duty. Then there's a GI Bill, which gives veterans about $36,000 to use for college, up to a decade after leaving the actual service. And then the military also offers tons of programs to help recruits pay back their student loans and reduce the amount of debt that they accumulate, with the Army and Navy offering up to $65,000 and the Air Force up to $10,000. Not to mention, each branch offers its own tuition assistance program. So when you consider the fact that a lot of the students that are targeted through these recruitment programs are living in low-income areas, it makes sense that they end up, you know, becoming more susceptible to actually being drafted, to actually enlisting, because they have, you know, maybe less financial literacy, whether it's the programs and there's the programs that their school is lacking that teach students about taxes, about debt, about loans, stuff like that. So when you realize that they're coming from areas um, where they have less knowledge on these types of things, it makes sense that they end up enlisting and, you know, becoming more active in the military, because it's, it's promoted and advertised to them in a way that makes it seem as if it's the only way that they can escape generational poverty when it's really not. So again, considering all these factors makes it seem very clear as to why military recruiters tend to prey on the low-income students in these, again, low-income neighborhoods that are primarily constituted by people of color. So in other words, the effects of the poverty drop are adverse. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
This issue can be mitigated if we just fund education a little bit more. I feel like every single societal issue always finds its way back to education and the lack of funding in a lot of public high schools because a lot of schools, public schools in these inner cities, in these low-income communities, lack funding for very vital programs that teach people about financial and economic literacy. A lot of students are you know, led into believing that joining the military and enlisting is the only way that they could escape, again, generational poverty. When, as I said, just now, it's really not. So I think that the answer to a lot of issues like uh, the school-to-prison pipeline and like the poverty draft, it all revolves around funding educational programs a little bit more. Then students would be exposed to the idea that financial literacy doesn't mean having no debt and that's it. It means, you know, having knowledge on how we can actively make good decisions when it comes to spending money. You don't have to pay for super expensive college tuition. Community college is an option and if you don't even want to go into a skill that requires a degree, there's also, you know, the option of doing a trade and working on that. So again, the military isn't always the only option. And while I don't consider myself like an anti-war activist, I do consider myself someone who believes that you need to know about all of your options before enlisting in something as drastic as the military. So again, I think the solution to, you know, the poverty draft and, you know, ending it completely relates to funding financial literacy programs in public schools, especially the ones in low-income communities. And by doing that, I think that the effects of the poverty draft will be a lot less pronounced than they are now. With that being said, you've reached the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you were able to learn a little bit about the poverty draft and its relation to minority students living in low-income communities. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a positive rating through Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And to keep up with the show, be sure to follow it on Instagram at a little podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I'll see you next week here on A Little Perspective.